<clears throat> so good morning, everyone. And I'm, uh, I'm pleased to be here. As I mentioned earlier, I want this morning to give a different kind of Dharma talk to uh, reflect really in the first part of the talk some about uh, my mother's life, particularly looking through lenses of spiritual practice and relating, I think, her life to much of what we do here in terms of practice. And then in the uh, second part of the talk, I want to talk about my own experiences of being with death and with, with uh, grieving. And I'm going to do so by also, particularly, particularly in the first part, uh, show a number of uh, photographs uh, related to aspects of my mother's life. And I'm trying to uh, not have these have the feeling for you of watching someone else's home movies or home slides. So I'm going to try to keep it connected with a sense of practice. And I don't have a lot of photographs of my own uh, grieving process. <laughs> but I do have some poems. Okay, so I will, I will see what happens. So those of you who have come regularly on Wednesdays, or probably even not regularly, uh, remember Bernice. And she came to move to California in 1999 and probably almost uh, immediately started coming to Spirit Rock. And I imagine she's uh, visited here hundreds of times and certainly come to you know, the Wednesday morning gathering here um, probably in the hundreds, you know, in the several hundred uh, times. And This is, this is a photograph from uh, 2012 of her with me right here in the hall. And she was, you know, she was uh, at this time, she was 89 at this time. And here is a photograph of her, probably as you may have recognized her in the last few months. This is from 2015, uh, just a few months ago. And uh, she died on February 21st, and it was somewhat unexpected. Uh, many of you know that she was involved in an uh, automobile accident coming to this class on January 20th. In fact, I gave a talk that day, the first of a series of talks on impermanence and death. And uh, she was being driven, and the car was stopped uh, make, to make a left turn, and another car with the driver presumably unmindful plowed into them. And uh, she had injuries, which were not major, but they were significant. There was uh, a uh, dislocated shoulder and several broken ribs, and for the... And the presumption was that there'd be full recovery. And she seemed to be doing very well for about two and a half weeks, and then se things seemed to get worse. And they got worse, and still it was very unexpected. Uh, she died on a, a Sunday, February 21st. And as late as the afternoon of February 18th, I and my brother were talking with doctors about different strategies for full recovery. And I remember I was shocked by talking to one of the doctors that day, this was three days before she died, who mentioned that I, we might start thinking about hospice and she might not have more than six months to live. Right? And that was a huge shock, right? And so, um, and then things uh, later that evening deteriorated a lot and uh, things moved quickly and she, she died on the Sunday morning, February 21st. Uh, one thing I'll just mention, one of my fond memories is that uh, uh, 
the week be a week before we were having lunch and uh, I was to give a talk at the Marin Sangha in San Rafael that night and I didn't know what uh, topic to choose but I wanted to do something for Valentine's Day and we talked over lunch and had a large dialogue and the talk ended up as uh, asking the question what's the kind thing to do <laughs> and that was the talk and you know I took notes and we talked over lunch so that, that can give you a sense of that the vitality was quite there it was it was quite unexpected there was very little time for preparatory grief although we were with her almost entirely the last four days and I was basically practicing uh, almost all the time when we were after she died we we asked for the body to be there uh, and was with her for about almost another 12 hours. So it was a big shock and medically we still actually don't know exactly what happened. You know, generally we, we just say the stress from the accident was too much for her system. That's about all we can say, you know, and probably affected her heart some, so, so we don't know. Uh, and then I uh, uh, was scheduled to be on retreat for the entire month of March and I kept with that intention and was on retreat six, starting six days after she died for four weeks and just just a little bit of a preview it was a very good place to be and then I'll, and I'll come back to that and I, I want to, maybe I can say in advance that uh, obviously grief was a big part of the retreat but it was not dominant actually uh, especially the last two, two and a half weeks. It was not, it was very strong, but it was, it was not dominant. The sense of practice was dominant. And maybe, maybe I'll come back to that. We had a memorial actually the first full day of the retreat and, uh, and so forth. So what I wanted to do was to reflect some on her life, uh, partly in tribute, partly to point to areas of her practice. And just a, a few other thoughts about her relationship to coming on Wednesday. She loved being here. She had a strong connection with Sylvia. Sylvia actually came to the hospital um, with Seymour, her husband, two days before she died. Uh, my mother grew up in New York City, one block away from where Seymour grew up. She was, she was uh, several years older. So they didn't know each other, but they were in the same area. And I also thought that she would often come to my talks here, and sometimes she would correct me and she would say, that's not quite right. And I would say something about my own life or you know, <laughs> something from history. She said, that's not quite right. You know, but she was polite. She wouldn't raise her hand in the question period and say, you didn't get that right. <laughs> so uh, I'm expecting I'll say some things that were she here, she would correct. But... Uh, yeah, so, okay. And just to give you a sense of things, this is, this is her uh, one day after leaving her, this was the day leaving the hospital, so this, you know, she's, she can see a sling on her arm, but this does not look like there's been, you know, major injuries, right? Right, so this was part of why it was such a shock. So, I'll give a brief narrative of her life, and I'm going to try to time this so I have about half of the time on her life and half on issues of, uh, of uh, death and grieving. That, that might be a little bit challenging, but I'm going to do my best. So I'm going to begin with uh, uh, her parents uh, both were immigrants from Eastern Europe, and this is actually, these are some photographs of her mother came from near Vilna in what's now Lithuania, and her father from what uh, uh, was called Kovno. They were both, uh, uh, both uh, of Jewish background and basically leaving conditions of oppression, you know, in that area. There were, you know, I know the history pretty well, and there were what, what are called pogroms, which is we would call now ethnic cleansing and murders, and it was, it was uh, not a good situation. Her parent, but I have, I have gone back there and visited, actually taught, uh, meditation in, uh, in uh, Vilna, which is called Vilnius by the Lithuanians, and have taught there. And these are some photographs that I took of the area. My, my grandmother 
uh, grew up initially on a turkey farm, which I think the story is, I'm, this is where I might get it wrong, but they left after the whole town was burned down, something like that. And then this is the lower picture is a picture of uh, uh, Vilnius or Vilna and the, the Jewish quarter. And these are my, my great-grandparents, uh, my mother's uh, grandparents on the, on the mother's side, I think, uh, who, who, uh, who came and went to New York City. And this is her, this is her father, uh, who was named uh, David Klein by the uh, people at immigration. The act we found, we have a certificate, his actual name was uh, Tevi Kalika. <laughs> They, they changed the name, but this is, he came as a, as a uh, I think as a teenager, and this is him in New York, you know, with, there's, with his motorcycle, and then with my mom at age one. And I'll, I'll give a brief narrative of her life. Here she is at age one. <laughs> <laughs> and then here's her mother named Ray. Uh, this is in, uh, in New York as a child. Uh, and... Let's see, I'll, I'll just go through briefly. She, and I'll, I'll come back to some major themes, but just to say that she was, uh, uh, they, were, they did quite well, even as immigrants, uh, and, my, and actually kind of entered more into almost like a middle-class life somewhat, even though they were, they were immigrants. Uh, my grandfather uh, started a box factory. <laughs> I like to think of that in terms of you know, they were, he was into creating things with a lot of emptiness. <laughs> so, uh, and they did well. She started playing music when she was like very, very young, probably five or six, and got very involved with music to the point where, as I don't know how old, but she was starting to practice eight hours a day on the piano and was looking, you know, was uh, started performing when she was seven or eight years old as a musician. I like to think that eight hours a day discipline with music probably helped me in my retreat practice. <laughs> right, so, uh, and let's see, and she, she, went to, uh, she went to the Manhattan School of Music and then to uh, Brooklyn College where she studied, uh, some, one of her teachers was the psychologist uh, Abraham Maslow. And she studied with him and told, you know, I heard a lot of stories about him. <laughs> a lot of them <coughs> very interesting, <laughs> not in the books. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> and she, she, uh, she studied uh, music, mathematics, and psychology, and then went to uh, graduate school in, um, at Columbia studying uh, education and, and counseling psychology and, uh, and was involved with music, was you know, involved in, in New York. It was a very vibrant uh, place to be at that time and I'll, co I'll come back to that. Let's see, she also did, did uh, work in Harlem and I think as I'll come back to she was quite involved with uh, social justice issues from a pretty young age. So um, this is my father, who uh, came from a similar background, but was actually uh, much, much more working class and family didn't have so much money. He entered the uh, uh, military when he was 18 and uh, was in the World War for six years. Uh, that's another story. And this is him. Uh, just as he's gotten out, my, his name is Simon. Many of you met him. He used to come to the Wednesday gathering also. <laughs> and uh, and this, is, this is him around the time he met my mom. They met at a, uh, uh, like a folk dance in New York in uh, January 1946. And he was a little bit socially awkward having you know, been in the military for six years. Uh, and she said that he sometimes stepped on her feet while dancing. And she said that she knew this is the man I'm going to marry. <laughs> and this is her 
at age 23, right around the time she was married. And let's see. Here's a. Uh, so he went to uh, he went to college at that point. He actually went to Columbia also on the GI Bill, and they lived in a kind of a communal situation with a bunch of other uh, couples uh, on an island in the in the, one of the I guess it'd be I don't know if it's the Hudson Bay or one of the bays in New York, and. They, um, they moved to the Washington, D.C. area. This is a little bit hard to see. This is her standing in front of the Capitol. And uh, I'll just say maybe more that uh, they moved to Washington. They started raising a family. My brother, or I was born. My brother was born. My sister, my brother Frederick, who you'll see a few times, my sister Liz, were born in that area. And... Uh, grew up, we were born in the 1950s, and grew up in that area. And um, they moved in uh, 1970 from the, uh, they had moved out to Maryland near Washington, D.C., and moved in 1970 to uh, Richmond, Virginia, where they lived for almost 30 years. Then they moved to uh, Petaluma in this area in 1999. Uh, my father died in 2005, and they live, she lived in Petaluma uh, around the corner from my brother and, until, until she died. So that's the, that's the narrative. And I'll come back to a few things. I wanted to organize the rest of my thinking about her according to themes. And I was, uh, I was thinking of this in terms of uh, uh, our practice. We have a lot of focus on mindfulness, on loving-kindness, on inner practices. And my mom uh, did get into that. And I'll, I'll talk about that later. She said you know, she, she loved the last years to meditate with me. She liked to come here and meditate. Sometimes we'd be meditating, and I'd be ready and finished, and she would say, more. <laughs> She'd want to do more. And a lot, she said, uh, when she was meditating, um, I just want to do concentration practice, just concentration. <laughs> so that was, that was interesting. But I would say the major aspects of her were more what come under the purview of uh, sort of Western spiritual paths to the sacred. And I want to talk about three of those. The first is love and dedication to family. The second is uh, beauty and the arts. And the third is social justice. And it's interesting to reflect, when you look generally at Western traditions, there are different doorways to the sacred than we find particularly in the Buddhist traditions that we've inherited, which are primarily monastic. You know, so you have in the Greek traditions, it's often, there was often, uh, the Greek philosophical traditions, it's often there's a threefold emphasis on how one reaches the sacred or the spiritual and sometimes uh, brought in a, to a formula talking about the true, the good, and the beautiful. You know, the true being the nature of reality, the nature of things. The good being the practical life of living ethically, living with justice. And the beautiful being connected with art and even crafts and, and, and music. And these are all vehicles of spiritual transformation. And then when you bring in the Jewish and Christian traditions, you have also uh, emphases like uh, particularly uh, living ethically, living with justice, very strong in Jewish tradition. Also, the personal relationship to a God, very, very strong. And, uh, and so I think much of our practice actually right now is sort of navigating how we relate this deep inner practice coming primarily from a monastic tradition, which is beautiful, and connects with um, you know, gaps in Western spirituality very, very clearly. And how do we connect that with these other spiritual roots, such as family, love, relationship, living in the world, justice. And I think a lot of our practice, 
is navigating that balance, right? And you see a lot of our most innovative workshops or even retreats in some ways relate to that integration. Because you don't have, we don't have really in the monastic traditions that inform us, we don't really have so much an emphasis on the, we have an emphasis on living ethically and on seeing reality clearly, but not so much on justice, right? Not so much on social justice. Uh, and not so much on, on the beautiful or on art and music and beauty and so forth, or on uh, personal relationships in, in couples and family related to love. So I think that there's some very interesting integration that I think is, is, is one way of seeing part of what we're doing. So I've, I've grouped her, kind of her own approach into three categories. The first is kind of love and the dedication to family. The second one is uh, uh, music, art, and beauty. And the third one is social justice. So I'm going to focus on those. So here, first, family. I'm sorry the pictures aren't a little larger, but you can, can see these are just, I'll give a few snapshots of us. You can see me at age one and age three, which you can't see very well. Maybe some of them will be a little bigger. Here she is. There's a birthday cake with me, I think, at age five, and then with the children. And again, I'm sorry, these are smaller. Um, kind of just very, very dedicated. And when we had the memorial, several people reflected that what she was most dedicated to in her own life was family. This was really the getting emotional from time to time. Here she is with my sister uh, in the 1960s. Right? So this, this is, and then uh, I don't have a whole lot of photographs from the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s. I think I have them, but they're not organized. So we're, we're going to go very quickly. I have a lot from the last 10 years digitally, but we're going to sort of have a lot of gaps here, which is okay for reasons of time. So here's her and my father that they've moved to Richmond. You know, and very, uh, again, very strong dedication to family, to relationship. Um, with my sister in Richmond in the 1970s, my sister is around the time of graduating high school. And here is the 50th wedding anniversary. <laughs> you know, with, we all had t-shirts with uh, image, the images you saw of them uh, when they got married. And this is uh, uh, a year before my father died, a year and a quarter. And here is with us right after that. At my sister's wedding. At a party. <laughs> I think at, at a birthday party for me. And oops, now we're, now we're. <laughs> Now we're to the second theme. So there was this uh, tremendous dedication to, uh, to family uh, and to love. And that was really, I think, one of the ways that she entered, entered really what we would call a spiritual path of transformation. And, you know, and many of you know, as people get older, uh, it's possible. It doesn't always happen. But uh, partly, in the last few years, she had... Uh, some loss of short-term memory. The level of love was more intense. When I would come to see her, and I, I experienced this also with my grandmother, and maybe you've experienced this, the intensity of the love was amazing. You know, when she would see me after not having seen me for a week or a few days, just the level of love and uh, openness. And it's quite, quite something. So this, the second doorway, we might say, doorway to the sacred, that I think was one of her doorways, was through music. And she was initially enamored by classical music. Her favorites were uh, Beethoven, this is Beethoven, and Mozart. Those were her favorites. She liked a lot of others, but those were the ones she really loved. And she was also very, very uh, much involved with the kind of the folk and social music of the time. Being in New York City, she met a lot of these people. Here uh, is Paul Robeson, 
very, very influenced and saw Paul Robeson a number of times, one of the great figures of the 20th century. She met Woody Guthrie, right? She was in circles with uh, a musical circle. She met Woody Guthrie. This is uh, Pete Seeger. And um, these are the, the Weavers, not, not a great photograph, but that's some of the music I grew up on, you know, classical music and this kind of music. Then we got into rock and roll, and my mother didn't like it. <laughs> you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, <laughs> and so forth. So, and then uh, the musical tradition has been carried forth by my brother. This is my brother Frederick, who uh, is a professional musician, a pianist also, and plays locally. Uh, anyone wishes he plays at Mama's in Mill Valley uh, yeah. Saturday mornings and sometimes Sunday morning. So this is, this is a trip we made to see him play. He plays sort of blues and uh, blues, New Orleans-style music. And this is, uh, this is my mom playing the harmonium <laughs> with, a, with a friend. Some of you may know Sean Fite, who, who teaches here sometimes. And she was, she was also very involved with art. When she was a child, she would go every Saturday to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So it was very deeply grounded in the, the pursuit of beauty. And then the last area I wanted to mention was the area of um, uh, social justice. And this was very much, she was very involved uh, with that from a young age. I think she knew about anti-Semitism and what was happening, you know, growing up at the time she did. Uh, you know, that was still quite strong until the early 60s. My father could not go to medical school because of being Jewish, because there were quotas. And the, those quotas existed till the early 1960s at most schools. I don't know if people know that, but that, that, that is factual. And so she was aware of oppression and I think quite tuned into it. At age 15, when, she, uh, when they were about to have their high school prom in New York at a hotel, that had banned the African-American singer, uh, Marian Anderson, she helped lead a boycott. As I said, she worked in Harlem and she was involved with these kind of issues. She was, um, she was at the March on Washington. In fact, she was part of the uh, delegation of um, people who actually led the march. And she said she sat 10 or 15 feet away from Dr. King when he gave his speech. So here's some photos of that. In, uh, she, she dedicated herself to raising a family for the first uh, 14 years of my life. And then she started working in Head Start in uh, rural Maryland and worked with issues of poverty and worked with kids. This is not her, but this is just a, a Head Start uh, classroom. And she worked with that for five or six years uh, very, in a very dedicated way, working with issues of poverty and race in, in rural Maryland. So very dedicated to social justice. They moved to Richmond, Virginia in 1970, right at a time when the Richmond public schools uh, were being ordered to desegregate by a court order. And there was massive resistance. She was hired to help with issues of race and uh, at, in the public school system and worked 10 years there. They had a federal grant and she worked for 10 years helping, uh, basically, I think she, she worked initially with students in a school who, were, who might have been having difficulty. She helped with uh, trainings as she got more involved with that. I think she got to more and more leadership where she had a lot of leadership over the whole city of Richmond approach to race relations, leading workshops and trainings. We would now call those diversity trainings. Doing that for 10 years until um, President Reagan took office and uh, ended the funding. <laughs> so uh, it was a very intense time. You can see these are white protests. You know, and there was a tremendous amount of what would be called white flight uh, in the school system. People leaving the schools, not wanting to be part of it. 
And in fact, uh, there, were, there was court-ordered desegregation, but the percentage of what we would call white students in the schools went in 1960 from 45 percent down in 1975 to 21 percent. People just left. They formed uh, what they sometimes would call rebel yell academies, as well as uh, private schools. So this was the situation she was in where she was working with these issues of helping in multiple ways. So there was a lot there, and um, I think I just want to honor those, those three dimensions of things, three dimensions that really, I think, are, are for us also kind of doorways to the sacred and really honor her in that way. So here we are again at uh, Spirit Rock, and um, here's her in the teaching role. No. <laughs> uh, so I think I'll talk now for the, the rest of the time about my own, about my own process and being with, being with death and grieving. Um, I mentioned some of the backdrops. So there was a, um, a tremendous amount of, of shock and uh, disbelief. And I'll, I'll mention a few things. Uh, it was, I, I said it was a very good place to be for me, for, for this process of being with, being with, a, with recent death, having come from that intensity, you know, of being with her in the dying process, being with her body for 12 hours, and then six days later starting four weeks of retreat. It really permitted, um, permitted a lot to happen. I mentioned that grief was, was strong, was there. Um, we had a memorial. And uh, essentially, the practice is a very good way to let the grieving process occur without getting stuck. You know? and, the, uh, and I, I could see in tracking my own experience that, uh, that the grief went through a number of different phases, and I'll, and I'll talk about that. Um, Maybe just uh, first, before talking about those, those about the grief process, to say a little bit about the, you know, I, I wanted to be with her with the whole process. That's that was that was calling me, um, and to just to be there. And I was I was actually practicing the time during that time, and in different sorts of ways, and in a way uh, talking with her. She was. She was mostly, uh, she was a lot conscious until the last 12 hours or so. And so we would talk. Uh, I remember the last, uh, the Saturday before she died on Sunday, I went to sleep and I rested well and I went in and talked with her and I said, I, uh, I rested really well and she said, I'm so glad. And, uh, you know, later that day she did say, I love you, right? Some of her last words. And after she died, staying with her, I found very helpful. I, I, I looked at a number of books, which I found helpful for any of you working with this. One of them that I found quite helpful was a book by Andrew Holosak, who's taught here, uh, called Preparing to Die, from a Tibetan tradition, but a lot of very powerful and useful material. And there, there are quite a number of uh, other books that are very helpful. And one of the suggestions he made was of actually being with the body as long as possible. And that was very valuable to be with that. And it was my idea, but my brother and sister both later said they really appreciated that, to just be with that for, for almost 12 hours before the mortuary came. And this is a poem that I wrote uh, during that process, after she had died. Uh, in repose, sky blue clad, resplendent in peace, so, so still, so calm, her ease and dignity shining with plum blossoms on her chest, adorning Bernice's spirit as it moves, as it moves. Uh, goodbye to you, dear one, as you remain in my heart forever. And so uh, 
you know, the, the, grief, the grieving process didn't have much time before she died, and so it, it kept going. And one of the things that I knew uh, from past experience is that the dynamics of grief are quite similar. I actually, uh, the first uh, major teaching I ever did, I was uh, a teacher, I was, the first teaching job I had was to go to Bowling Green State University in Ohio and teach, and the, they especially wanted me to teach a course on death and dying, uh, which was the second most popular course at the university. Interestingly, the first most popular course was on sex. <laughs> And the second one was on death and dying. And there was a teacher who had developed this. And it was a beautiful course. And I taught like four or five sections in the year, four or five classes on death and dying, which was very powerful. One of the things I learned, because we explored grief a lot, was the dynamics of grief, whether it's death, loss of a relationship, something else, are quite similar. They're very, very similar, whatever the loss is. Uh, of course, the levels of intensity are going to be different. Um, so the first, the first clear aspect of grief, and it was augmented because of the suddenness, was was uh, shock and disbelief. You know, and I could see that in all sorts of ways. Uh, I should mention a few of the tools which really helped me with the grieving process. One of them was that uh, we have a bench, which I, we set up for my father, which is actually on the left as you exit this hall, right over near the bell. And I would come down twice a day and sit at that bench and, and basically uh, reflect, and I would quote-unquote talk with my father and my mother, uh, whatever the metaphysical reality of that is, I don't know. but. That, that's what I would do. And it was like a ritual. And it was a very, very helpful to have that ritualized aspects for the grieving process. So it was a place that I came to twice a day and the emotions seemed to flow. And a lot flowed very well in that process. So I would do that after breakfast. Every day I would take a walk and then come and sit there. And then after supper, I would come and sit there and I would Generally, my father would give me meditation guidance, and then my mother would be with more with the grief. So my, my father would say, like, you know, you're doing well, keep it going. <laughs> you know, pretty shortened to the point, you know, or, or you know, like, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, don't rush. <laughs> pretty, pretty simple. And, and that, that uh, dimension of ritual was really, really helpful. It was like I, I kind of thought of myself as a kind of a portal. You know, and there were stronger feelings that happened regularly going there. Another, uh, another dimension that was very strong was, was the dimension of dreams. You know, and um, uh, I've always had an interest and pretty good access to dreams since a pretty young age. And um, recently, when I do retreats, uh, what seems to happen is that I often wake up at the end of dream cycles, remember the dream, write it down, and go back to sleep. Uh, typically five to ten times a night. So I will remember as many as ten dreams in a night. It's interesting. And I write them down. And it, I don't stay up, because I think partly because the level of concentration is good enough, I just go back to sleep. <laughs> but it, it, it gave me a good window, because I could see the dreams uh, related to my mom. And there were a lot of them, right? And I could track the changes in the dreams. Very, very interesting uh, as they took place. Um, so this first phase I would call one of shock and disbelief. I think it's, a, it's an initial phase of, of grief, particularly given the circumstances. There was a, even now, the, there is an element of shock and disbelief. You know, my brother uses the word surreal. And of course, those of you, you know, the, we've all had losses, and many of us losses of parents. And we can know that you wa I walk around in daily life right afterwards, and it seems weird, right? It seems weird, like what are people doing? Aren't they aware of life and death, you know, and so forth? And, and there's a strange aspect to it. Um, and uh, I didn't experience that at the retreat, though, I have to say. 
Um, but I did experience it right afterwards. And there was a quality of shock and disbelief. This is a poem that I wrote also just a few hours, I think, after she died. Lying so quietly on the hospital bed in her bedroom, no breath now, no pain, her restlessness, as if ready to wake up, I look for signs of movement. I would not be surprised by a miracle to tell me that her dying has not happened to reverse my disbelief. Right. And so that kind of shock, uh, and you know, just in terms of particularly last, the, the days afterwards, there was, there was just so many things where I would experience this is the first time, the first day I'm at home without a mother. Right? They're endless like that, first time, last time. The last time I leave uh, where she lived, you know. This was the last time that I was at her house, having gone there when she was alive. Endlessly, first and last times, you know. It's almost like there's a divide in time that occurs. That's very intense, right? There's a, there's, and, and that would, I, I wrote a poem on that, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read that now. But it was over and over again, this is the first time, you know. Uh, this is the last time, and it was like I, I almost I could imagine how people wanted to create, you know, uh, B.C. and A.D. with Jesus, yeah. <laughs> like divide time in half, because it felt like that. It felt like that time was uh, ruptured in a way, and very uh, very strange in that way. <laughs> so uh, a lot of a lot of thoughts would lead to crying. Uh, you know, many times a day in this first phase, particularly in the dreams that I was having in this phase, what I was calling shock and disbelief, I would dream of her typically one or two times a night that I would remember, and she was always alive. It was like I was at different parts of uh, my life or current situation, but always, always alive. And I should say that during the retreat, I did uh, get on the telephone and talk every day with uh, for maybe 20, 30 minutes with people close to me or uh, fam- family members and, and like two people very close to me. And that was, uh, that was very, very helpful, you know, very, very helpful. Uh, and so the silence didn't, uh, of the retreat did not feel oppressive. It felt actually quite beautiful and to be, to be practicing. Um, one of the things which happened in that first phase, I would say, was particularly with the shock, is that there were a lot of thoughts of, uh, thoughts came through, uh, like, uh, uh, I should have uh, acted differently, or I should have, I didn't realize that this was life-threatening. Of course, the doctors didn't either, but there were those thoughts which came through, uh, you know, um, I wasn't aware it was a life-threatening situation, or I might have done more, or, or taken better care. And those thoughts came through, and I think that's very common with the grieving process. We know that very well from loss of relationships, right? Endless thoughts like that, you know, of I should have, I might have done this, I could have done that differently. And I would bring those, this is one of the benefits of having this ritual space, I'd bring those thoughts and air them at the bench. And I would air them and I would almost always get the message back, you did beautifully. And my heart would be settled. But it was really important to uh, let them come through and air them. So again, these are, I think, general aspects of grieving. It was very important to see if there was anything troubling me, let it come through. And then I would air it. And after I would air it like that in the ritual space, uh, they, would come, they wouldn't come through again, actually. It would be almost like it was processed. I mean, it might come through a little bit. You know, I'm describing a several-day pra- uh, process, but it wasn't, it wasn't very much. It didn't come through that much. Now, here's a really interesting experience I had. And I think this is part of the grief process. On the first full day, I went to a memorial in Petaluma. For those of you from Long Beach or Minnesota, Petaluma is about 40 minutes away. (laughs) That's where my mom lived. And 
we had a memorial the first full day of the retreat, which again was quite wonderful about just close friends and family. It's about 25 people. And um, I brought a, uh, I brought a file with my notes and reflections of the last six months of my mother's life, along with a lot of other things. And I had it there at the memorial, and I thought I brought it back to, uh, to Spirit Rock. Two days later, I couldn't find it. It wasn't where I thought it should be. And this had, like, my memories of the last six months, and it, al- it also had a quite a few other things which were very precious, were like, I don't know, the equivalent of somehow losing six months of photographs, the last six months of one's life. And I, it was, it was, there was a lot of anguish, and there was pain in my, in my mind. I got kind of frantic, you know, and um, it felt very urgent and confused. And I actually drove back to Petaluma to see if I could find the file. I couldn't find it. And I thought I might have left it somewhere. I asked the managers at the retreat to look for it. I asked the teachers, maybe I had left it somewhere. I could not find it anywhere. <coughs> and I, uh, I sat with that for uh, almost four weeks. And that was interesting because, of course, what do the teachings tell us? Well, the teachings would tell you, okay, an opportunity for letting go. <laughs> But there was a lot of anguish there. But there was, over those weeks, I could feel the letting go process occur. I also kind of, that is mystery, you know. I mean, I know that sometimes with death, you know, the the laws of physics are overcome, but this is strange, you know, and I could not find it anywhere. And um, uh, so I went through a lot of interesting practice with letting go. And I felt like I had let go by the end of the retreat. I felt like I had let go 90%. Not 100, but 90. And I didn't have thoughts about it the last few weeks. And there was some way of letting go and saying, okay, what's really important? You know, it's the, the deep, what's in my heart, right? And, uh, you know, it was helpful to talk with my sister who said, you know, I haven't taken any notes. <laughs> I don't have anything, you know. Uh, but there was something that was, uh, initially, it was really uh, quite painful. And so that was, part, that was an interesting process. Um, there was a second phase, and I could see this especially in the dreams, where there was more acceptance. I started having dreams where I'd be at social occasions and be talking with someone, and they would offer condolences, and I would say, yes, it's really sad. So some acceptance of the death was there, you know, some sense. There was still some of the, the shock there. It's still, it's still there now to some extent, but it's lessened. So there was that second process where it comes more into, yes, this happened. Some degree of acceptance. Still a lot of sadness. But also the, the times when I would just burst out sobbing were less. They started diminishing. They would go, in my own experience, maybe from 10 or 15 times a day to half that number. So that also occurred. And then there was a last phase which I, in which I started having some dreams in which she was both alive and not alive. And like I'd be in the dream, I'd be with her. I knew she was dead, but there she was. In the dream, I was very confused. But when I would wake up, I'd say, oh yeah, that's paradox, <laughs> which is actually the truth, right? That someone is both alive and not alive. That's the truth of people who are no longer in our lives. And so that seemed to be where it, it uh, came to. And I, I think just in terms of looking at our practice, I think we can get stuck at any of these phases in terms of the grieving process. You know, I, very easy to see how one could get stuck with, I should have done this, or, you know, I didn't respond adequately. Could get very stuck in terms of self-judgment or something like else. So it's something really to watch for. And again, some of the tools which really helped tremendously were the ritual, the dreams. Of course, I was doing meditation practice, you know, 16 hours a day. That was useful. (laughs) Understatement, a little bit of a joke, but okay. So uh, that was part of it. Other things that I was noticing was just in the whole process, my heart felt 
like it was just bigger than anything. I would, you know, uh, the managers would do something kind for me and I would break out crying. I'd notice a small act of kindness and I w- it would, my heart would be overwhelmed by that. You know, or I would think of what John was doing with the Syrian refugees. Just very, very open. One, one day I just uh, was, uh, maybe after a meal, just watching the creek after the, the rains, the beautiful creek. And I just looked at the creek and said, um, this is goodness. And tears came. And I said, this is great. How do I stay like this? <laughs> you know, how do I, how do I keep that heart open? So uh, that's our practice, isn't it? That's our practice. But it's to know that possibility of sensitivity. Of course, that you know, one has to navigate that with the world, with a world of aggression and conflict and so forth. But that was very, that was very beautiful. So maybe just to close with one uh, brief story. Um, as I was uh, cleaning up and preparing to leave Spirit Rock, um, I, uh, I moved the dresser uh, that I was using to, to near the window where there was more light. And I just opened it up and I thought I'd just look one more time and see if I could find my missing file. And down beneath the bottom <laughs> drawer, there it was. I found it. I'd already let go 90%. (laughs) But there it was. And and I was not emotional about it. I was just, oh, I'm glad. It's good that happened. So there's my mom. Short time ago. And here's her at one. Here's her right around the time she got married, 23. Here's her with my father. And then here's, I had this image that thought a nice closing image. This is kind of like, it's kind of the, the long path, right? This is the long path near the end of her life, having walked a very long and beautiful path. So, thank you. So we have a little bit of time if anyone has a uh, reflection or question. We have probably six or seven minutes if anyone has a reflection or could be a question about, about grief. Here we have one up front. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Working? Yeah. I really appreciate the uh, friends, our Spirit Rock uh, members of the staff who were here. Thank you so much. I decided to come today because I have something for you from a yeah. friend in Kentucky. Yeah, so that was just a, a little closer to that. That yeah. was just a beautiful uh, memorial to your mother. I mm. uh, would it be worth? writing down in a little pamphlet for people to read. Yeah. I think that would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you. And could be could be just to ask a question about the grief process if, you know, some of you are in the midst of that yourself. So, please in the back. I want to say one thing just yeah. I'm here. Um, thank you so much. Um, it's so important since we know her so well and we'd see her every week and yeah. um and knew her a little bit, but this is amazing to know her entire life story. It's lovely. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, th- thank you, Donald. I so appreciated hearing about your mother and about your process. Um, I was particularly intrigued by your visits to your bench to yeah. talk with your parents. And, and I've heard on podcasts in the past that you often would talk with your dad. Yeah. Um, and I was just curious, did they have any advice about your materials that you lost? <laughs> did they give me guidance on my materials? Well, you know, I took notes when I would go to the bench. I would sit there 
and I would take a few notes and of course, you know, I was like, I don't know who it was, my father and my mother would say, yeah, yeah, I, th I think you know it's about letting go. <laughs> right, so there was a little bit of humor there, right, because that's what we practice, right? So, um, yeah, for sure, and, and, and also the perspective, uh, which also my sister gave me, which of course I had, but it's also mixed with the anguish uh, of, uh, you know, what's really important. So they said, yeah, this is about really getting clear what's most important. And also later they said, okay, yeah, I mean, you want to look at your relationship to things and memorabilia and, you know, and, you know, it might be good to generalize the inquiry. <laughs> right, so, uh, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, but there, were, there was, uh, yeah, the, what I got there was actually very practical and right in the moment, you know. And like I say, my father tended, I don't know, it's kind of evolved, he, he would, and I'm not, again, saying metaphysically what exactly happens, but I get stuff that I don't get easily myself. That, that occurs there. And my father tends to just give very simple, practical one-liners, which, which actually, on a day of practice, they stay with me. You know, it's like, it's like guidance. It's really about intention, and it really stays with me. It's quite a resource. You know, and people can do that in various ways. It doesn't have to be a relative. You know, one can... But it, the ritual aspect, I think, is very, very helpful because it, it brings a certain power. There's a particular location, there's a particular time that I do it. In fact, I've started doing that at home. I have a particular location. I have a big redwood tree in my backyard, and I just do it right at the redwood tree. And, um, but one could do that with you know, a teacher. One could do that with someone who's not alive. You know, could, could talk to the Buddha or... Kuan Yin or whatever. So it's, uh, there, there actually are a lot of interesting techniques that are somewhat similar that one can do. It's basically like calling uh, another level of the mind to give one's guidance. And of course you have to know that it's trustworthy because <laughs> the mind's tricky. Yeah. Please, uh, we have uh, up front here. Uh, Debbie, please. Yeah, my, my mother-in-law uh, had her husband's ashes. She was about 89. She had his ashes up next to his picture, and she would talk to his ashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so the, uh, that is something that I think could be really useful for probably most of our practice. It's to have some ritual space where you enter into a way of accessing a, a part of your mind which is not busy, which is actually gives you uh, good guidance. And sometimes we have to sort out there. I remember in my own practice, when I was first starting to practice, um, I remember this moment, I think I've talked about it here, where I was doing walking meditation and I was next to someone and I felt fear in relation to this person. And it confused me, like, why am I afraid? And I kind of stopped right there and I just asked, why am I afraid? And I got an answer. And it felt like it activated what the Quakers call the still, small voice. And it activated that and it started to be more present. I could actually, when I was confused in a situation, I could say, what's going on? And something authentic would come, whereas before that I didn't have that. And so I think we're talking about something that accesses these other levels of mind. It can be done in a lot of ways. And it's really, it's an interesting aspect. Of, of this, and you know, I, I've done it in this ritual way, but one can do it with a teacher, one can just do it with, uh, you know, you can really see what works for you. You can, can uh, do it with a relative, you, can, you know, that when I was, what I just described was just my own. I, I, was just, I would ask a question, but I would go to a different level of mind to get a response. I, I tended to call it my no-bullshit mind. <laughs> Pardon my, my French. <laughs> You know, uh, and it was very, very valuable. It was not infallible. Over the years, I would work with it. I, it was about 90% good, 98% good. But there were some times when I kind of got overly inflated or something, I, w I would say in retrospect. Yeah, maybe please, uh, just maybe just three more and then we'll, we'll have to finish up. Um, your story is, is wonderful and it's also shown me that I probably have several deaths 
of people close to me that I have not completed the grieving process. Mm. And a couple of them from many years ago. Yeah. And it's a whole direction yeah. to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Elizabeth. I think mm. that's, you know, and maybe that's true for all of us that the, the grieving process can get stuck. And it can get stuck for a significant period of time. And it can be resumed. Right? I've, I've read also that it tends sometimes to happen with women because they're usually the ones who have to get themselves together and organize right. everything and that's right. not pay attention to themselves. That's, that's right. That, you know, I, I was so, um, what, how should I say it? I really so much appreciate the fact that I could be on retreat and did not have to go into busyness, right? And even, even though in retreats one's practicing, but there was a lot of space for the grief process to occur. And uh, I really appreciate that. I, it would have been hard to kind of go into action. And uh, of course there are things to do, yeah, but, but thank you. Yeah, up front here and then on the, on the side. Yeah. Hi, uh, Monique. I just wanted to say thank you. Welcome. I appreciate you sharing the love of that you shared with your mother. Um, I saw a lot. There was a lot of similarities to my background. I grew up in New York City, and and my parents were from Eastern Europe, Jews yep. and immigrants. And um, but what I'm so what I what I so carry with me is that I hope for my son, who's 24 that he feels the love that I have for him, the way you felt it from your mother. And so I'm so, I feel honored that you shared that with us. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you, you're very welcome. Maybe, uh, uh, I think the last one. Yeah, I feel like everyone else, very fortunate that you, that we live in a time that people are willing to share this kind of level of depth. So I really, really appreciate that. And it opened my heart. I feel emotional. Mm -hmm. But um, so I wanted to ask if your mother, through her last phases of spiritual practice, did she deal with death? Did she talk to you? Did she mm -hmm. take care of her financial affairs? Did she tell you how she wants to be buried, which I want to know if she had cremation or mm. something else. And did she clean her house and get rid of her things? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> those mm -hmm. are things that, you know, kind of, I think, yeah. can be a light and a guidance in the whole process, the practical, <laughs> spiritual practical. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, the practical things were well taken care of, and especially through my sister, you know, um, that my sister probably 10 years ago, was named executor, and they had all everything in order. And um, she was pretty well organized. And so, you know, we, we do have to be with the house and take care of everything, which is, which is a big thing. Uh, we, but it's good to have three siblings in the same area. It also was, that was also really crucial because the last five years of her life she didn't drive and she had like I said she had some short-term memory issues and so we we actually had a process the last uh, at least the last three or four years where we had uh, helpers probably six to eight hours during the day and then on weekends either I or my sister would be with my mom from Saturday afternoon till either Sunday night or Monday morning. And my sister lives in El Cerrito, so she and I would typically bring my mom back to the East Bay. And so, uh, but the, the practical matters were there. One thing which I would have liked to have more, but I sensed that she didn't want to go there so much, was to actually have discussions of death. That did not, I would have, it's one of my I don't know if to call it regrets, but I would have liked to have had that more. I, I kind of went in that direction sometimes, and I had a sense that she didn't want to go there, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, she, was, she had wishes to be cremated. Yeah. Well, uh, the ashes are with my brother now, and we're, 
we've, we've looked into things and my brother has been investigating and he really likes this uh, site, a uh, cemetery uh, in Bolinas near the ocean. <laughs> and uh, we may, they may end up there. And uh, I'm going to add to the bench, the bench has a plaque for my father, I'm going to add a plaque for her on the bench. First of all, should we have a, a second bench? I don't think so. <laughs> so we're going to, I don't think so. And my mom also wants the bench cleaned. <laughs> She, she, she told me about cleaning the bench well before, you know, because we, we, we would go sit there, you know, we would go sit there ourselves, you know, we, we like to sit on the bench as a little ritual we did. I didn't, didn't mention that. So, yeah, so I think the practical matters were, were there and, uh, yeah, taken, taken care of. Well, I want to really appreciate your, uh, hearing my uh, explorations, hearing my explorations, hearing of my mother's life. It means a tremendous amount to me to be able to do this. It's a kind of closure. It's also a kind of offering to the world. And, you know, one of my friends said that it's also a kind of making medicine of a loss, which I like. I like that term. You know, it's like making medicine of a loss, so it actually, there are benefits for others, right? Which I really, I really like that way of holding it. And so I want to thank you for, for being part of this and, and offer the benefits of our morning to all beings. Always remembering that all beings includes us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.